Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Leary and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Andy Heyman. Now, Andy Heyman was a senior officer with the Metropolitan Police. Before that, he was with Essex Police. Well, no, before that, you were with Norfolk Police, weren't you? So you've gone through the whole... Yeah. But where did it all begin for Andy Heyman? Well, it goes back to when I was uh, 16. I joined the cadets with uh, John Hedgethorne was the chief inspector. Yeah. <laughs> what a character he was. Um, and it, that cohort was some real names. That if you look over there, over your shoulder now, you think, crumbs, they were all cadets. Yeah. You know, I heard you were sort of chatting to Bob Scott, but he was one of the first yeah. in the cadet team. Um, but in my era, you had Mike Todd, um, Grant Carey, so all, Paul, uh, Paul Watson. So they were people who were sort of budding cops in the old system of join when you're 16, and provided you kept your nose clean, you'd go straight, straight through to be a cop. And that's what I did. I remember going to training school and your photograph was very prominent. I mean, Andy Heyman stood out well in the, in the, in the cadet uh, school. I hope they've still got those pictures up in that. Probably not. In that, <laughs> no, probably not. But So are you an Essex boy originally? Yeah, yeah, Southend boy. Uh, parents still alive in Southend. Oh, brilliant. Um, and the only reason I, I left Southend was sort of, Really, I was caught in, and that was a half, the halfway place between what was now my wife and uh, was my girlfriend. Then was uh, North Essex, but right. mainly I'm South Essex, South End born and bred. Wow, yeah. And what, having done your cadets, I mean, John Hedgethorne was legendary in the cadets and the stuff that he did with them, moulding great people into even better people. Yeah, that sort of work. He, he probably didn't get the recognition that he he deserved. He, he was. I mean, he was a one-off. I mean, you can say that about many people, but with, with Edgethorne, I mean, he was a nutcase. <laughs> he, he would take, he'd take us out on these hiking holidays. Well, not holidays, really, but like treks right across Snowdonia. I mean, nowadays, you, you wouldn't do it. You know, it was the You wouldn't of, be allowed to. No, the height of winter. And all you had was these canvas um, to sleep under. Sleeping bags you'd probably get out of, I don't know, uh, M&S... For 20 quid. So yeah. they weren't even the proper expedition stuff. And head down and just like walk all day, every day. He, he was a nutcase. And I was, he used to take us on these race walk bonanzas. <laughs> and it was a, a 24-hour walk. He'd be walking around a track for 24 oh, hours. But he used to walk into work, didn't he? From wherever oh, yeah, he yeah. lived, he'd, he'd walk into work. Yeah, he was, a, he, was a, he was a good guy. And, he, and as you say, probably didn't uh, – he, he wasn't the most popular with the senior ranks. Um, he used to hold his ground. He had his own thiefdom. He was the chief inspector, and uh, if you if you crossed him, you got marched in at six o'clock at night. And it was left, right, left, right, left, right in front of him, salute him, and you'd get it. You'd get the hair dry, and uh, but you knew where you stood. Yeah. And I think if you look back now, as, you, as I said over your shoulder, and look at the people who came through that cohort and what they achieved within the police. Service. I mean, it doesn't matter about senior rank or whatever, but specialisms or whatever it might be, 
they had the grounding from Edstall. Yeah, absolutely. And because then Phil Knight took on the mantle as well, didn't he? Yeah. He was another one. He's another force. Yeah, Peter Knight. Peter Knight, Knight, sorry. Knight, Peter yeah, Knight, yeah. yeah. And he's just passed away, sadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you've done your cadet stuff and then it's PC Heyman. Yeah. Go to uh, Lee, which was convenient because I only lived in, in Southend. But I got, you know, I was, I was at Lee for six, seven years. Um, some real good characters there, as, as we all have, have worked alongside. But the, the memories of Lee, I mean, we used to drive around in those minis and they had the stop lines with, uh, you know, you pull yeah. the call down. And I was talking to someone else the other day about this. I said, who ever thought that up? It's mad. Because you get in front of a, of a motor to pull it. You pull the blind up, you can't see anything. Can't see it. No. So they do a left or a right, and then you're standing there in no man's land. Where's the car gone? Yeah. Um, but yeah, memories of walking the, the Broadway, shaking my, my hands shaking so much when I wrote my first HORT one, the old Horties. Um, also, the Broadway, there was a car one night, and we were driving along there on nights. Uh, coming towards us, it's, uh, all you could see was these sparks. And uh, the, the only thing that was keeping the front offside wing to the car was the radio cable that went to the aerial on the, oh, on the wing. God. This bloke was completely rat-faced. And uh, we, he falls out of the car. We nick him, take him back to the nick. And we, this is like the little tinkers, what they used to go up to. He'd have in his, his coat, he had a, um, a bottle of pure wee and a, and a pipe. And he was having a little go at filling up the urine sample from that. I mean, no. he, had, he had no chance. He had no chance. <laughs> he soon got put out in the backyard. So that, he was a, uh, it was good times at Lee. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, that's that's all changed down there. But the South End Borough still has that connection. You know, the borough still has a connection with the with the force. And you still got a number of people that that served in the borough. The old white helmets, white helmet yeah. brigade. I yeah, saw yeah. Bob Craven in a post the other day, and he was with somebody who was wearing a, a white helmet. And a uniform, and it, I think that person probably owned that uniform from brand new. <laughs> looking at it, but and it still fit him. Yeah, well. yeah, he did very well. <laughs> None of mine was. Um, so you, you've, you've done your stuff there. At what point did you go for your first promotion? I mean, you've, you've gone through about I don't know a dozen promotions. Yeah, in- but I was, a, I was a slow starter. Um, if you look, I'll, I'll come into this as we, mm. as we go through this um, chat. Um, I did about, I think I was seven years before I was promoted to sergeant. Oh, right. Um, and I, that included going down to training school, which was a, a weird decision, but it, it worked out all right. Um, and then I'd gone into sort of training as well. In fact, uh, Mike Todd uh, convinced me to do that. And that was around when all the pace stuff was going on. So I, w- I left there after about six, seven years on promotion to Brentwood. I was a custody sergeant there for a bit. I was only there for about a year or so. Um, and then it was another four years before I made inspector. So I was ele- about 11, 12 years. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then it, you know, it all clicked. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, you know, what, what, why did you join the police? Did I join the police because I wanted to, to, to become a, a senior cop? No, I didn't. I just wanted to be a cop. And it's not until you're in the in the job, I think, you start making your own choices as to what you want to do. I mean, I there was a real crossroads for me when I was a DS at, uh, at Basildon, fantastic DS guy, Kev Macy, Morris Brazier, uh, Pete Walker, both those unfortunately mm. passed. And that, that was the sort of DS um, table. The DI uh, was Dave Bright, and I was just loving. Being a DS here. And Key Southgate sort of said to me, 
uh, and Peter went actually because they were the superintendents at the time. Yeah, do you fancy the squad? I thought, yeah, I'd have, I'd have some of that because I just fancied it. And then someone else, I forget who it was, whispered in me and said, well, you, you've got to commit to that. You can't just go in there and do a couple of years and have a ball and then come out. You, you've got to do some time. Yeah. And then I was then starting to think whether or not I wanted to commit for that amount of time. And I'm a bit of a kind of a, an adrenaline freak. And I, although the sort of, the pull of it was, was sexy and it was a, the front end of, of um, policing for, for a detective, I guess. I'm not sure I would be able to sit around in the car all day. I think that would have drive me nuts. Yeah. So I, I didn't do that. And then, you know, things worked out differently. Your your time at Basildon, I mean, the people that you've named there are fantastic. Peter went, what a, a gentleman yeah, he yeah. was, Keith Southgate. You know, I, was, I got selected by him and, and Roger Easton to go up, go on CID. <laughs> but my first interaction with, with you with you was in Ashford. Right, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. I remember, and yeah, there were a number of... I'll tell you what. What, <laughs> what a place, what a place that, that was. was. <laughs> I'm not quite sure all the stories should come out of Ashford. No, let's not. Yeah, we'll maybe not go there. Um but yeah, why did I go there? Because I, it would never have been my first choice. No, and I can't even remember. I think the commandant was an Essex boat. Yeah, Le- Levy and Levy. Yeah, and Levy. Yeah. Um, I think um, Murray Coleman was down there with with Gary Skull, and I thought to myself, Do you know what? Those two, they're good boys, good cops. Yeah. Why are they doing it? And I, I chatted to them, and I, I'm sure it was conversational with Murray. He said, look, you've got to do this. This is like you're putting back into the front end people who are going to come into the job. And if you're not careful, people on the tra- in the training wing are the ones that count rubbers and staples. They, they haven't got a clue. They haven't kicked a door in at 6 o'clock in the morning or seen the dark. No. And so, therefore, if you, if you want to really make a difference and put something back into it, you, know, you don't want to be like yeah, a Jack Regan, but what you want to do is tell someone how to do it. And they and have credibility of it. And I thought, do you know what? That's that's about right. So that's why I did it. And I, I and I went from there to Shotley. Oh, did you? Yeah. Which was which was good. You know, was, that must have been when Shotley first started, though. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. It was a great. So cold. So you'd go out on a on a parade. I'll tell you, we had morning parade. The um, recruits used to go out. It was so cold. And I remember, I was going around inspecting. I think I was the soldier sergeant there. And the inspector was doing the, the morning parade inspection with the old drill pig. And we're walking along and then this drill pig just stops at this poor guy. And he's got his stick. And he, he could see poking out from below his bottom of his trousers was this like stripy material. <laughs> <laughs> so he picks his, his, his stick up and he puts it underneath the hem of his trousers and lifts it up and gives this guy absolute dog's abuse. He's got his pyjamas on underneath his trousers. Oh. But that, you know, you like you look at it now. You couldn't necessarily give the abuse that they got then, but no one really looked at that to heart. Maybe some did. I don't know. But that was all part of it, and everyone had a giggle. But were they the right? If they took that too seriously, or took it personally, were they the right people to join, yeah, join yeah. the job? You know, that's. But you, I mean, you're brought up in a culture, as we said. Where as a cadet, you were run up and down the stairs, or you get extra duties, yeah. or whatever it may be, and that was how. Discipline is formed. There's a, there's a little story um, in the cadets, and there's a guy who used to be at Basel, a guy called um, Paul Watson. His nickname was Apple Watson. Uh, quite a tall guy. And uh, Nick Banks was the PTI. So you'd go in the, in the morning, do your, your PT in the gym, 
and then you, you had to shower. Most people wanted to shower upstairs in the accommodation block, but it, it, they insisted you showered in the changing rooms in the, in the block, uh, sports block. They were freezing cold. Mm. So no one wanted to do it. So Nick Banks used to go into the canteen, sit in the, in the corner table, and he had a view. You know that corridor with the picture? Yeah. He had a view there. So you'd have to time it right. You'd leg it. You'd sprint down there to try and beat his eye vision. And then the next thing you had to do was to get in the lift without him seeing it. So one morning, we've, we've done it. We've done the, the run, run of dare to get into the, to the lift without Banks seeing it. And we're in the lift and Apple Watson's dragged his heels. He hasn't got there quick enough. So, you know, in that lift, there's like a white, uh, a beam of light. Mm. If you hit that beam of light, it, close, it doesn't close the door, it opens no. it up. So he's got to jump the beam of light to get into the lift. <laughs> he does the jump. He gets in the lift. The only thing is he forgot to lower his head and he oh! cracked his head right on the top of the lift. Hilarious. Not for him, though. No. <laughs> it was claret everywhere. But, <laughs> but, we, but we never got caught. No. We, we got away with it. But, but, again, this is part of the character. And I think that the regional training schools, and I've said this before, and the the cadet system was such that it would identify the right people for the right roles. Yeah. Yeah. Spot. And, and regional training schools, by having it on local, you can't compare people. No, I know I, know I still bump into ex-cadets now, sadly, at funerals. And, and what's the first thing we do? Like we reminisce. I mean, I had a, I had a right result on my 60th birthday. Um, there are there was two people, three people there. The last time I'd seen one was um, when I was eight years of age at, at, at primary school. And this is the, this is the beauty of um, social media. And the other was uh, an ex, two ex cadets who I hadn't seen for donkey's years. And I managed to reach out and they come along to the 60th, which was great. But you know what? If I close my eyes, all three of them, it was as if I was like eight, nine, oh, no. ten ago. The voices were the same, the mannerisms yeah. were the same, and we then just picked up where we left off. But Looked really but, nice. But that's equally the, the, the skills of a police officer. Yeah. And because we are quite transient in what we do, we can pick up conversations that were held 15 years ago yeah, yeah. when we were posted to a particular place. Yeah. Having gone through your your service in Essex, what was the highlight of of working in Essex? Because um, you achieved cool, inspector at Chelsea. Yeah, that's a you? really good question. I I would say I, I would say the influence that I was able to have when I got to about sort of superintendent, chief superintendent. I went. To, I was divisional commander at Chelmsford before I went to the Met on promotion, and just before that, I kind of done a headquarters job where I worked really closely with John Burrow and the ACPO team. And I got, I got an insight as to how ACPO was operating. And John Burrow was, was I would say it's wouldn't I, but I, th- I thought he was outstanding. Chief. He's a real gentleman. Yeah. He's still alive. He's still over yeah. over this way. In the, yeah, he's still- yeah, I did some voluntary work when the, when the pandemic was on in the doctor's surgery and he didn't come in, but his neighbours came in, and I said, "Oh, you know John Burrowdy? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. still walking about." Mm. But anyway, going back, although I had a real ball, you know, working at different ranks uh, operationally, that was yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to forget that at all. But I, I think the penny dropped for me when I was about at superintendent. I'd, I just decided, all right, I could make a right pig's ear of this if I try and get into ACPO. Um, but 
I reckon I've got to have a go at this. And uh, because I can't keep moaning about what, what's going on about the leadership if I can't start influencing it. And all up, and I'll give you some stories as, as we go through this. I know people would, would knock me and would be not that supportive, but I'd like to think in the main, every time I went and did something at the senior rank, I was doing it for the right reason and, and, and thought it through. And I always used to say to my people, look, I need you more than you need me. Yeah, you know, so therefore, whatever I can do to make your job easier, I'm going to do it. And that's when I saw John Burrow and I saw the insight of how he was operating. Um, I thought, mm, that's good. But even he got it wrong sometimes. There was a, a real controversy um, where Tom Rogers was the commandant of the special constabulary. Yeah. And it was all kicking off because the allowances were not being play, paid as they should have been. So dry cleaning used to be a token that got pulled refreshment break and money was getting pulled. So it was an angry crowd of special constables, and rightly so. So Tom Rogers had given me the heads up. He said, you're going to have to speak to the chief. So he's going to address the annual meeting and it's going to be in the assembly hall headquarters. It's going to be like standing room only. He needs to have, he needs to be on top form. So I'll see the chief a couple of days beforehand. And he's, he's always really thoughtful. And I said, boss, you know, I think it's going to, It'd be an ugly crowd. I said, you, you can't wing it. You're going to have to go in there and, and give them something. You can't walk in there with nothing. You've got to have some goodies in your bag. And he was really dismissive. And I was really surprised. I said, look, Tom Rogers, he's a, he's a top operator. If he's telling us it's going to kick yeah. off, it's going to kick off. So, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. So we go up, we, get, we leave his, his office and we go up to the stairs <laughs> to the assembly hall. We really haven't even got off the ground floor and there are people standing on the stairway because they can't get into the assembly hall. I'm thinking, oh dear, oh dear, this this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to go horribly pear-shaped. And you could see John Burrow think, oh, and he's kind of like taking a step back. And he has to literally nudge through people. He gets onto the stage and he tries to, to placate them. He's got no chance. He's getting catcalled, you know, really, really not abuse, what are we going to do there, Chief? That's no good, Chief. We come here with volunteers. We do it for nothing. Where's our, where's our dry cleaning tokens? He, he screwed it. That's really? the only time I've seen him screw it. And uh, we walked back to his office and he said, I've balls that up and I, and I didn't reply. But So even someone like that yeah. gets it wrong. And I, So therefore, having that privilege of insight, you were you know, travelling the car with him or work, working with Charlie Clark. And Jeff Markham, you know, you just saw a different side to what it was like to be an ACPA, and I, I learned a lot from that. Mm. Well, I mean, two other great names, Jeff Markham and um, Charlie Clark. I, I know Charlie Clark keeps in touch with Bob quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. What was the what was the motivation for you to to move forces to? You went to Norfolk, didn't you? Did you go there as? The- yeah, no, I went from. I mean, yeah. The senior command course was um, Andy Drain and I went at the same time. Um, that, Mike Todd had, had sort of been a really good friend to me. And I hope I was a good friend to him. It's, you know, we, we was, he was about two or three years ahead of me. So I'd done the management exchange in the Met. Uh, I was just behind him. He did it the year before, I did it the year after. And the SCC, he, he gave me the heads up. He says, it's, it's, gonna, it's a funny old animal. Yeah, you've, you've got people there who are talented, but most of them there because they think they deserve to be there. And we ain't part of that. You know, 
we haven't gone through all the junior command courses and the intermediate command course. We haven't had the special course. We, we're coming. We're being parachuted in as people who've just got there, mm. haven't got through the uh, natural ability. Yeah, yeah. He says you're, you're going to find it awkward, and it was awkward because that, they all knew each other. They'd known each other since they were on the special course. You know, I don't want to overgeneralise because there were some really talented people there. But generally, it, it was a difficult culture. And he said to me, look, he was in the Met. He said, look, I think the Met will be recruiting. No, he actually was in Nottingham. Sorry, bigger part, he was in Nottingham. He said, I think if the Met come up, we've done it, we've done it as an inspector. You know, that would be something that would probably suit, suit the way our backgrounds and that. And, and he was right. So I, when I've done the CSCC, the jobs came up in the Met and I went into the drugs portfolio. And I learned something from Paul Condon when he, he was a commissioner and, and uh, I was interviewed by him. And then on my first day, you walk in there with a brand new uniform on it. And he says, right, you know, uh, Essex boy in the Met should be all right. He said, just let you, I'm just going to let you know. If you think that I select people from outside the Met uh, on a half hour interview, forget it. He says, I know all about you. I know what time you get up. I know what, all, the, all your career back, background. And he said, and that's what, if you ever get to a senior rank, that's what you've got to do because one interview is not enough. No. Um, so, yeah, and I did uh, did the, the drugs portfolio, which included uh, Trident, which was uh, Hugh Ward was the commander, the ex-chief of uh, Northern Ireland. Yeah. Still go out with him socially, nice guy. And uh, that was all the drug-related uh, contract murders where people from Jamaica were coming in and doing drive-by murders on the, on the streets and in nightclubs. So that was a... Fantastic. Oh, period. I bet that was fantastic period. Yeah, just um, you know, on a de- different level, really. Do you think that? I mean, Paul Condon got uh, berated because he he said there was a question, you know, why are you stopping so many black people in in South London? He said, yeah. well, actually, it's because the majority of the people that live in South London are black, and if they're committing crime, they're going to get stopped. Well, the- well you, you know, Paul, what how the equation goes. I mean, if if a victim. When a witness says, well, I would describe the assailant as being in the mid-twenties, either Asian-looking or black Afro-Caribbean and uh, wearing a sweatshirt and jeans, um, and that is consistent. Well, I ain't going to go around telling people to stop a, a white European no. in, a, in a suit. No. And the same thing happened, although it, it went horribly wrong, really, in, in Westminster. When we were doing Stop and Search for Terrorism, um, there was a big hoo-ha amongst the politicians, no change there, and they didn't like the balance um, when they looked at the stats. So we had cops um, around Westminster stopping stopping MPs, actually, and people who are suited and booted when they didn't fit the profile of a terrorist. Mm. Well, what's the point in doing that? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I think you'd have to stare it out and say, no, that's what the intel is telling us that. So our team should be going out and stopping the search in, in that way. Yeah, because you can't, you're not there to placate people. No, you're there no. to, do, to no. do a job of work. Absolutely, yeah. So how long were you there for the first time that you went to the Met? So the Met, I did uh, a year or so. So I went in 98 and then that was drugs, uh, Trident, and then I went into um, anti-corruption, um, which again was a real eye-opener for me. You know, I, I'm not, I think I'm naive to people getting up to all sorts, but you know, in my mind at that time, sort of naughtiness was was maybe a cuffing things or mm. yeah, whatever. Um, some dodgy interviewing, but this was like the top end wholesale. Yeah, in fact, I just did um, 
did a gig last week for a documentary that's coming out, which was a, given all the stuff that's going on in the Met at the moment, they're revis- revisiting, you know, what is this cycle of corruption that's going on in the Met? And Robert Mark obviously cleared it out in the 70s. Paul Condon suddenly realised there was a big um, intelligence uh, called the Ghost Squad, which was collecting intelligence about is there truly corruption in the Met or is it just a fallacy? And that was un- under the covers for well, years, really. Um, a guy called Roger Gasper was in charge of that. And he then presented this report and basically said, you've, you've got to clear the, top, the stables out again. It is like horrendous. Um, and it, to be put into that, Roy Clark was the DAC and John Stevens was the commissioner put me in to replace him when he retired. Right. And I, I was so lucky to have top operators who were doing, I mean, it was, I, I, all I was was, you know, being a figurehead heading up. I was part of the team. And, you know, you'd, these were people who had been involved in serious crime investigations for years and they had to be really ahead of the game yeah. in the way in which they framed stings and arrests. And actually, you had to pinch yourself that you've got people like um, one particular job where he signed on duty and, and there he is in a hotel room, which we we dug up and he was plotting to, to kill someone um, and torture him in this hotel room and then, then take him down to a car crusher and crush him. This guy is a DC out of Ilford, Martin Morgan, eight years. He'd never pulled his salary for two years. He didn't need to because the guy that he was working to, the bad guy, was giving him so many backhanders, he just lived off that. So that kind of, that world of corruption, that uh, I, I didn't think that went on. No. You know, another job. I mean, this one is it's shocking. So as a, as a, like a villain, and he's had a fallout of his partner. It's really acrimonious. And there's a child involved. So this guy is, is really worried that his wife's going to get the custody of the child. So he goes to a bad guy. It was an ex-cop, a guy called Jonathan Reese. Uh, his partner was Sid Fillory. They were suspected of, of killing a partner in, um, in a pub car park in South London. They run a company called Southern Investigations. Real, real bad guys. Been, they went away for this job. So he's having a conversation in, in a pub and said, look, you know, how am I going to secure custody of my child? I, I can't second guess this. This has got to happen. No problem. What we'll do is we'll plant some cocaine in her car. We've got a cop in the inside. We'll get a dodgy search warrant. Go around her gaff, search the house, search the car, find the drugs. She gets nicked, goes for custody. She's got no chance because she's a drug dealer. Sweet. That costs seven and a half grand. Now, we were ahead of it. And we were doing bugging and surveillance of them. So we managed to, the day before the search warrant's going to get done, we screw the car, the cops, take all the, the bad drugs out, replace it with false stuff. Sure enough, the cop gets the search warrant, nicks the, the, um, the partner, takes her back in custody. We tell the, the custody of the um, divisional commander what the scam is. So she gets released and then we nick all three of them the next day. Now, that is going on in London mm. with serving Met officers. And so to be part of that... Amazing. It's really... Yeah, it is amazing. But it's disappointing as it's, well. Though, yeah. It? It's like, is this, is this right? I can't, I can't believe it. I, I mean, I do get... I do get disappointed in, in 
policing when they when that happens. Uh, I'm delighted that there are teams that pick these people up. But I wonder if there's a correlation, certainly in the 70s, between poor pay and an increase in corruption. I wonder if we're going to see that because the the pay doesn't hasn't gone forward. And yeah. I, I wonder if we've got people that are on. I, I don't know because I think this could be a couple of examples. So like. I don't want to hook on to Morgan, but Morgan was like, I think he he loved the he liked the lifestyle of and of the sort of white boy villain. And he liked the sort of yeah, the sexiness of that. So that's what pulled him in. But the greed part, I I I don't I see that a little bit, but you'd have a little I wouldn't say you have sympathy, but you'd be you'd understand if someone, you know, couldn't get food on the table and so they were doing a bit of dodginess to try and you know achieve yeah. that i can get that but this this wasn't the case you know it was a bit of a power thing i mean when we looked at uh ali design which um it, it went a bit sort of belly up towards mid halfway through the investigation he, he wriggled like a, you know a trout on the end of a fishing line um, but eventually he did go down i mean that was all about you know power um, an influence, and I think so. I, I don't. Who knows what gets into people's heads to do that? But it must be a, a really uncomfortable feeling to be lying in bed at night, and you, and when the door goes at five or six, whatever. You know, is it because a loved one is is hurt, and it's an agony message, or is I'm my house done? Yeah. And before you know it, all your house is being spun. Yeah, and rightfully so. If they're, yeah. if they're that at it, then. And and I've got to say that the anti-corruption people do so much work in the background. Yeah, it's very rare that they make a mistake. Yeah, I mean, the people that I, I was so lucky to have in the team. I mean, they they leave me standing. I mean, I, you know, they're a Premier <clears> League. <throat> I, I'm on the Vauxhall. I mean, they've got, got nowhere experience in them. So my job was to create an environment where they can operate. Yeah. So they were audacious, they were adventurous in their planning. Some of the plots they came up with had to be better than the bad guys. You know, that that, that was unbelievably uh, the case. What then happened is exactly the same as Robert Mark's time. So everyone thinks they've cleared out the, the uh, stables, no more rotten apples in the barrel, and rotten apples always rot the others. So yep. that's why you have to get rid of them. And then we had other commissioners came in after John Stevens, who was John Stevens was absolutely ruthless. Um, he had a, a sort of way about him which you would never want to cross. And he, I think, was the last commissioner who you could actually stand up and go, you know, he, he knew what he was up to. He was an operational cop and a uh, great bloke. After that, it, whether or not, it, you know, it was about budget constraints, I don't know, but police stations getting closed. All the intel stopped, so there was no corruption intel whatsoever. And inevitably, what's going to happen then is the bad guys go, hang on, it's all a bit of a soft touch now. Mm. Um, when you see these guys at Charing Cross, there was a whole shift at Charing Cross. Um, Cressler was the was the commissioner. And all they, they were really up to no good. It's a bit like the old choir boys of yeah. that film. And they just got a slap on the wrist. So everyone else looks at that and goes, hang on, we're not even going to get on a discipline hearing here. So what happens is they get a resurgence and there's no intel 
And everyone thinks, well, vetting will do it. Well, of course it won't. Vetting is only as good as the day it was done. I, I could be vetted today, <laughs> get a clean bit of health tomorrow. It's like an MOT. Yeah, I'm, I'm out playing around. So now, Mark Rowley, Commissioner, I think he's up against it because I think he's got to play catch-up before he can start being effective. Yeah. And in my, in my CIB3 corruption team, I'm, I'm sure I'm about, I think I had about 400, maybe 500 uh, cops, and they were all the top deck tackers. Wow. Plus the intel. He's, he's scrapping around trying to find loose change. He's got about 100. Yeah, that, that ain't going to have any impact. So the wow. poor old boy, he's on a hiding to nothing. Well, he is, and, I, you know, there's there's other things in there. I mean, the the... the the case reports made it quite clear that community policing is one of the, the main things. I think people over institutional racism doesn't mean the whole place is institutionally no, racist. No. It's got no. a completely different connotation to that. But I think that for him to and others to go on record and say, you know, this has been like this for years, or, well, actually been part of it for years. So what yeah, have you yeah, done? Yeah, yeah. What, have you done what did you do to stop this all, all these bad things from happening? And the fact is... It's a minority of people that are doing these stupid things yeah. when the majority are working bloody hard to keep the public of the United Kingdom safe. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, I'll take me off to him. He's, he's, Mark's taken it on. And, but as we'll probably find out as we go through this, is that I'll describe that the, the Met is a viper nest at a senior level. Um, and you... you You've got no friends outside your office. No. And that's all the politicians are having to pop at you. You've got other people within the force having to pop at you. You have to be really cute and of crocodile skin. And it, and I think all that mixed up with the challenge of what he's got to do, is it's going to be a real big ask. Oh, yeah, it's huge. Yeah. You, you've you've concluded your first term in the Met and then yeah. you've gone to Norfolk as the chief yeah, constable. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's, that's like night <laughs> and day. So, I'll tell you what. Well, uh, Keith Povey, um, he was chief HMI. Uh, and Ronnie, Ronnie Flanagan was chief HMI uh, and Povey at about the same time. So um, they said to me, well, look, yeah, you're in, in with a shout. Yeah. It's, um, it's going to be about 10 or 12 shortlisted. And then after half time, they'll cut it down to six. And uh, so you're in with a shout if you, if you play it right. But you cannot dress like you dress. I said, what? what are you all about? Cheeky sod. I said, I, I thought my suit was all white. No, no, it's too sharp. I've got to play it down. So when you go to Norfolk, he said, don't go in there wearing a deer stalker, but don't go in there wearing a city suit. He said, you're frightened. So anyway, I go in there. I get, I get, uh, get, get through it. Um, half, after day one, there's a, there's a death by dinner. I don't do it now. So you sit here. Literally around a, a t- dinner table in a hotel, and you've got a police authority member either side. You have one course, and then after that course, you move on and you go and sit with two other people. Right. So I remember for girls there with this uh, first course, and the, and the deputy chairman, he owns most of North Norfolk. Oh, Mr. Hayman, he says, um, So you, uh, do you go shooting? <laughs> <laughs> what? All I had was visions of Danny Falls and horses sketch. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I don't, I, I don't do it. What about riding then? Oh, well, no, this ain't going well. I said, no, look, I'll be honest with you. I said, I don't do any of these country sports. I said, I just haven't got the background for that. So I just try to play it with a straight 
Straight That's back. why Gareth Wilson went there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what was really, this is like an tr- absolute true account. So I get the job. And one thing, if you can find out, did, was it unanimous or was it not? And the reason why you want to find that out as the chief is if it wasn't and you got someone offside, you got to work hard to get them yeah. back in the camp. So I got took the old clerk out for a few beers to get him a bit um, loose-tongued. I said, come on, let me get a secret in. Uh, was it unanimous? He said, well, it was, but it was it was close. He said, there's one that you've got to work on. So he, he tells me this story. He said, after day one, the chairman says, okay, then, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, police authority, it's early days, we've got another two days of selection, um, but I'd just like to go around the table and get a feel for how you see things. So they go around and they go, well, yeah, he's, he's done all right. You know, he's done all right. Oh, it's all blokes. He's done all right. He's done all right. And then this uh, female member says, oh, well, it's this, um, uh, that man, Haven. He said, um, he, I, I understood what he was saying. And I said, he couldn't dispute what he was saying in his presentation. But chairman, do we really want to have a man who's our chief constable with an accent like that? How <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny is that? Yeah. Yeah. So there was still... You know, the country set and it's still the yeah. prejudice of it. But in, in that role, um, all right, I was only there for two years. Uh, the truth be known, the Met, I'll, I'll come into how I got out of that in a minute. But that that was a really good time. The deputy was a guy called Colin Paul. It was an all um, national crime school background. So he, he was, you know, good good guy to have as your deputy. Um, and you had to look after the Queen. Um there's some great stories here, Paul. So I'll, I'll get there in the um, in the I'll start the first second of January. So um, and the Queen is in residency at yeah, Sandringham. At she that goes time. there um, and she leaves on the on the as it was then the, the passing of her father in February, and they set the royal family set their diary by the same thing each year. If they're doing a foreign visit, it will be the same weekend, and on the third Sunday of January. Whoever the chief constable is gets invited to lunch at Sandringham and with their partner. So this letter lands on the doorstep. And I thought, what the hell is this? I said, sister, my wife, I said, oh, we could be invited to lunch. What? I said, it'd be fine. There'll be loads of people there. It'll be like a finger buffet. No, no problem at all. So when we get there, we have to go to the church first, Sandringham. <laughs> so we pile, we sort of pile up there. And then you go out into the, to the, after the, the service. You then go into the vicarage for, you know, lemon barley. All I wanted to do was down a pint. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then you t- drive up to the front of Sandrium and there's like 12 people, 12 guests for lunch. I said, oh, you're having a laugh. So we go in the front door and the lady waiting grabs hold of my wife, takes her into the powder room. And she, she, her account is, I couldn't believe it. She sits me down. She's, you know, I've spent hours doing me makeup and me hair. And the first thing she says to me is, oh, would you like hair done, Mrs. Amy? <laughs> <laughs> you, you cheeky cow. I've just, just spent two hours on it. <laughs> anyway, we go into the sort of pre-lunch bit and um, get on the pre, you know, the chat, the royal family, you know, the Duke and the Queen comes out. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm holding me own. Talking about how she was a girl there and a little girl, and she used to skate on the ice uh, lake. So eventually, the equerry comes out and he shows this table plan, and it's an oval table. And the other guests there, we've got um, Nicholas Soames, Lord Soames, yeah. Winston Churchill's grandson, 
Uh, I think he was there with his niece. We've got uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and they've done a nice little touch for him. They've made all the serviettes on the table. They've made them like the Archbishop's crown. And then there was a, a lady-in-waiting, the Ecri, and then there was one of the Queen's uh, best friends. So when I sit down, I've got the Queen to my left, and sit next, I'll sit next to her. And to my right is this lady. My wife's opposite, sitting next to the Duke. And then that's it. So I, I then start to turn, to turn to my left to talk to the Queen. And she's like blanking me. She's turned her shoulder on me. I think, oh, I, thought, I thought it was going sweet as a nut. <laughs> obviously, I, it isn't. Anyway, this lady next to me, she goes, oh, Chief Constable, no, you, you do know the etiquette, don't you? I said, what? Oh, it's two courses to the left. And it's two courses to the right. I said, do what? Oh, yes, that's the etiquette. So you won't, the Queen will turn to you after, after the, the main course. I thought, well, I'm stuck with you then. So, <laughs> so I then said, trying to find a conversational piece, I said, oh, stress is a funny old thing. And I said, you know, I, I new job. I said, I'm looking to buy a property up here so I don't have so much travelling. Oh, trying to get all that coordinated. So I said, it's a nightmare. I said, have you ever gone through that moving house? Yeah, she said, uh, she said, uh, Chief Constable, our house has been in the family for over 600 years. <laughs> we don't move house. <laughs> oh, brilliant. But there's another, no, as, as, as the lunch goes on, and then she t- eventually the, the, the Queen turns to me, and she's sitting there, and she's got her leg up on a, on a little footstool, and it's when she'd done her knee. Right. So I'm like, I'm sorry to hear about your knee. I said, like, you have any treatment for it? She said, oh, yes. Yeah. She said, it's dreadful. She said, I have to go to King's Lynn. A physiotherapy. I said, oh, I said, that can be painful. She said, oh, she said, the physiotherapy. That's, that's okay. Why is it the physio always has cold hands? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the cheese ball comes out. So she says, so the chief counsel, she said, do you like cheese? I said, oh, yeah, partial to a bit of still. So this, this footman comes out. Uh, Port, sir, Taylor's 1937. <laughs> Yeah, I do. <laughs> put, put that in there. So you have to help yourself. They don't serve it. So there's this spoon with a very long arm on it and uh, a very small scoop. I thought, oh, it's and biscuits. And I thought, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to scoop it into this big pot of stilton. It's going to fly everywhere. So I'm really, really careful. And I get the spoon out. And I thought, well, I'll get my knife and I'll scrape that cheese off the end of that spoon. Or on my crackers, sweet. So I do that and I pull it off. No, no mess at all. So then she's the queen's obviously been watching me. Very mischievous. Got a lovely little, as, you, as we all know, lovely smile and everything. And uh, she goes and puts the spoon in there. And as she pulls the spoon out, she just looks at me. And what I hadn't noticed is underneath the stem is a little button. Oh. <laughs> and when you, when you press the button, it slices along the oh, seat and just no. falls up. And she gave me this look and a smile as if to say, you. Pratt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a lady, though. Yeah. Yeah. But Norfolk was great. Um, I went there the night before. All the family used to arrive, and it's, yeah, they arrive at different times. And I used to go there Christmas Eve to make sure everything was okay. Um, and it was just a privilege to do it. I did that. I did those lunches, two of those lunches, both exactly the same. The second one, the funny story from that was uh, we were talking about Fagin. They went Fagin broke into her room mm. in the palace, which was resigning potentially when I was, you know, my predecessor nearly went on that. 
And uh, I said, what was that like? And she said, well, I just woke up and he was sitting there. And she said, what's really weird? She said, I, I now know I made two phone calls, but I can't remember any of those phone call content. And she slept alone. She said, I'm, I'm really glad I slept alone because if the Duke had been in there, I think that would have, you know, would have been a ruck. Yeah. Um, and then she said, but why? the other day she said, I, I don't know whether you'll know about this, Chief. She said, but um, I was sitting there having my hair done. And my bedroom overlooks the whole of the back of Sandringham. She said, well, I saw one of your officers. It was like something out of Benny Hill. And this is the Queen's side. I said, what do you mean? He was chasing this man across the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so she had this, I don't know, it was, it, she, as we all know, fantastic um, monarch. And to have the privilege of um, yeah, looking after him. There's another little story where uh, another thing that's always in the Royal um, Diary is Prince Charles is the only person who can stay at Sandringham, as it was then, um, without the Queen there, because he's the heir to the throne. Right. So he used to have a long weekend. Starts on the Thursday. Uh, well, no, yeah, Thursday. And, sorry, starts on the Sunday, ends on the Thursday. And he'd, he'd invite all different people there. And then it'll culminate on the Thursday with music in the church, somewhere in, in, um, in Norfolk, Swaffham, in Candlelight. And then there will be a, a half-time interval, a bit of bubbly, and then go back in for the second half. Now, a little trick I got from John Burrow is if you ever go to these gigs, wear uniform. Not only because you should do, but actually you haven't got to work in the room because they'll come to you mm. because you're sitting, they know who you are. So we do this gig, and it's got uh, David Hopkins was there and uh, Paxman. Paxman was there. And Paxman was there with his wife, Jeremy Paxman. Half-time gig, out for a bit of fizz. And I'm just standing there, and Paxman comes over because he's like a bit, bit out of it, really. He's like, I said, what are you doing here? And he was writing a book about the monarch at the time, about Prince, sorry, about Prince Charles. Right. And he was invited to do a bit of interview in there. I said, oh, it's funny. He said, yeah. He said, it didn't start very well. He said, we drove in, and they take the car away. It gets valeted. And then when you leave, all your um, luggage is all laundered and packed with tissue paper. He said, yeah, we get there for the afternoon, and the first, that's on the Sunday afternoon. And he said, um, we were having an afternoon tea, and the, and the prince said, right, I said, uh, pre-dinner drinks then, uh, seven o'clock, black tie. Oh, yes, sir, yeah, of course, sir. So Sandringham, they go, it's only single rooms, and you have to go along the corridor to get to the bathroom. So they actually said, I went in the room, and he says, I'll give my, my wife a right, right, right good telling off. He said, where's the black, where's my black tie suit? He said, we're getting it. It's not hanging up in the wardrobe. It's nowhere to be seen. So we're having words. It's getting a bit frosty. He said, oh, I'm going down, down the corridor for a bath. He said, oh, well, I'm coming down as well. So they, they both, he said, we both went down the corridor, used the bathroom. When we come back, there it is. There's the suit. They're taking it away. Dry cleaned it, pressed no. it. Yeah, so it was, um, so getting all those kind of insights, it was, it, it Fantastic. was a, a real privilege. Yeah. And working there, you you were given the latitude to pick your team as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean yeah. that that's unheard of now because yeah. there'll be some HR. But as I said to a, a DAC uh, in, from the Metropolitan Police, Alex Ferguson never asked yeah. an HR professional who was going to score no, goals no. for him. The biggest uh, give you a bit of an insight here is that um, towards the end, when I was sort of thinking now. Uh, I know I should leave here now because we we don't. I think we did really well. We were performance was good. We'd restructured a little bit. And I just think I was running out of steam. And also by lunchtime I was getting a bit bored. And when I get bored, I get a bit mischievous. 
get myself into sort of all sorts of scrapes. So I thought, no, I think it's about time I, I moved on from it. And, and about that time, I get a call from uh, Chamberlain, who was the chair of um, Essex. He said, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, no. well, what, what, what do you want? I'll come up and see you. So he drove from Essex. And basically, talking about picking your own team, even they did in that in those days, which was like not that long ago, he basically was headhunting me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you want to come back to Essex? I thought, oh. That, that was tough because my head was saying, I knew there was a job coming up in the Met and that was the ultimate job as uh, specialist operations, counterterrorism, protection of the royal family, security airports. And my heart was saying, go back to Essex. Yeah. And I, that, it was really, you know, never, never have regrets because you'll never know whether I should have done that or not. But I, I really was so torn on it. And in the end, I went with my head um, rather than my heart. I just thought the tra- the operational challenge going back to the counter-terrorism would be phenomenal. Um, didn't know at that time, obviously, we could have the 7-7 bombings. I think going back to Essex would have been would have been lovely, but I knew so many people and they knew me. Could I really be a proper boss or would I have favourites? And would I be, you know, thinking straight or... I thought, nah, the lines are going to get blurred. I couldn't do it. And you're absolutely right, because I, I believe that familiarity breeds contempt. And having gone through from a cadet right the way through, all of a sudden you're going back and you've, yeah. you'd be in a position where you'd have to adjudicate on people that you've worked with, that have been your friends and colleagues for yeah. a long time. Yeah. So, no, absolutely. So you've gone back to the Metropolitan Police. Yeah, honestly, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm not just saying this. This, this is the, the best time the best and the worst. We'll talk about the worst when it when it all went uh, belly up towards the end in a, in, a, in a while, I guess. But the start of it, um, oh my God, you know, to be, um, they call it AXO, so Assistant Commissioner, Specialist Ops, your brief is protection of the royal family, protection of government, visiting the ambassadors who are resident in London, um, counterterrorism, special branch, um, parliamentary protection, Security of, of the national airport infrastructure. I mean, what a job. Are you sure? You know, well, I'm Andy Heyman. I'm from, no, I'll <laughs> tell you what, every day. Um, but then uh, the honeymoon period was over. So that was in the whatever it was, I don't know, January. So then in the July, we got the Olympic vote. Yeah. So we get that and, we, and we're, yeah. right. we're on it in London. Fantastic. Let's go out and celebrate that. I go into the office normal time. Um, I usually go into the gym before I went in the office. I'm on the running machine and I'm thinking, right, we've got the vote. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get pulled into uh, number 10. So dust down all the plans. So what is the security plan? We, we now start me doing that. And then I'm in the office and then uh, the deputy comes in and says, oh, no, just to let you know, there's a, there's a couple of fires on the underground. Oh, really? It's a bit strange. What's, what's all that Ah, it's nothing, it's just cut fires. Nothing to worry about. So I ring Peter Clark, who's my deputy who headed up counterterrorism, anti-terrorism it was at the time. Mm. And he said, yeah, he said, I'm not quite sure about that. He says, don't let me get too far on quick succession like that. And then as things unfolded, we then realised it's, it's not, it's a 7-7 terrorist attack. And I, I remember sitting in the office thinking, it's all right walking around like, yeah, you've made it because you've got like the best job. Because you're a chief, you're a senior chief constable, 
but you're also kicking doors in operationally. So it's all right saying, you know, I've landed, here we are, but now you've got to start doing it. Mm. And I just sat in the office and thought, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I've got four bombs. Very honest. Yeah. So I said to Peter, um, what are we going to do in it? He said, I don't know. He said, we've got, we got the plans. We, we, we can methodically investigate it. But, you know, as things unfolded, you, it became clear that this was not just a terrorist attack, which we thought we'd planned for them coming from outside the UK to attack. We never thought they would be homegrown. Mm. So it threw all the investigation strategies out the window. But again, a bit like the corruption, I was so lucky to have a fantastic, uh, experienced team. And we just, I mean, the, the incident room went round two floors at the yard. But the, 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 the most moving period about all of that, um, I don't really know the story, but there's, they did a, the, the, the bombers did a recce uh, about two weeks previous, so they did a dry run. And that's where we picked them up on the CCTV. And they were going to do four trains. Right. But if you remember, um, it was a bus. Tavistock Square. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, outside the General Medical Council, which is ironic. Mm. Um, what happened is the that, that bomber, he gets on the, on the train and his battery on the detonator had gone flat, so it never went off. So he's now thinking, they, they knew what train, uh, what time they were going to do. They, they peaked it for the most busiest time on the underground. So he comes off at King's Cross, goes up to WH Smith, buys another couple of batteries to put into the detonator. And then he thinks, well, I now know that yeah, the bomb's gone off because I know that's what they're going to do. What am I going to do? So he goes out of King's Cross, gets on a bus. And I, I actually, the most iconic scene from all of that, because the, the trains were underground, was in fact the mm. double-decker bus, which 21-7, which was unsuccessful, they didn't know about the existence of 7-7. And they shifted their plans to do a bus, which they did in the East End, or tried to do, because of the iconic nature. Anyway, part of the uh, investigation, which we learned from uh, 9-11, is you get all the victims and survivors and their families into a big hall and you address them as to what you're going to do and mm. how you're going to do it. And I remember sit, sitting there and there's all the FLOs sitting alongside the walking wounded and, and the um, bereaved. And this, this, if I needed one telling moment that says, Heyman, just get over yourself. This is all, this is reality. It was a guy, I've given them an address. Peter had said what the strategy was to investigate. And this guy got, gets up, puts his hand up. He says, Mr. Hayman, Mr. Hayman. He said, um, you've got a question? Yeah, yeah, fine, far away. He said, I know you can answer this. He says, but it's really important to me that I ask it. So he said, my son, um, he was going for a job interview and he doesn't know London at all. And we'd done a dry run about a week ago. So he knew what to do. So he gets on the um, on the underground and the bombs have gone off and the underground stops. So he gets off the train and he says, um, why is it that the first bus he gets on, he lost his life? No, I don't. And I thought, I mean, that you could hear a pin drop. And that's when the reality kicked in that this is not about it's not about how you feel about oh, no. our job is. This is about what you've got to do for, for bereaved families. Honestly, mate, I just, it still leaves me cold to this day. And I remember where I was when that happened. And the 21-7, we'd been invited out to the Australian High Commission's ballet. They had a ballet at the, um, 
Oh, one of the theatres in London, it's yeah. Swan Lake, and we were there because we couldn't get any transport, no. we couldn't get get around because of the, the failed attempt. But yeah, it's 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 terrible, and and we we walk past those iconic places every day, Allgate East, Tavistock yeah. Square, yeah, yeah, and all those people that lost their lives. And it's like when you go to New York, you know, you see the memorials, uh, yeah, the nine eleven memorials. But but to lighten it up, I mean, on, towards the end of that um, seven, that week of seven seven. Tony Blair, they've been G7 at Scotland. So Tony Blair was promised he was going backwards and forwards between London and there. And we had a scrum down on the Friday night. He, G7 had finished. Um, and he was sort of having, getting a briefing from us. And as we're getting towards the end of the briefing, we can hear the bands playing up on the horse guards. And uh, it's like, I think it's the VE Day celebrations or something like that. So we finished the meeting. And I, I remember me or someone said to him, well, promise, you know, uh, what are you going to do this weekend? Oh, I said, I've got so much paperwork I'll catch up with. He said, I've got red boxes. And he said, I'm just going to stay in the flat here with, with, uh, with Shereen. Oh, right. Okay. So, uh, with all that music going on? He said, oh, no. He says, that's fine. He said, what I'm more worried about is when she starts singing along. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And then another, another little chilling sort of um, insight was uh, Putin came over for a meeting with Blair and Blair said, oh, we want to brief him on the, on the terrorist stuff. So I was fortunate enough to get invited with five and six to um, support the Prime Minister and give him a briefing to Putin. We sat in uh, Cobra's room and uh, I'm literally as close as I am to you, to Putin. Wow. And he never smiled throughout. And it, this, this starey, icy look that he got. Uh, and the little tinker, he can speak English, but he chose to go through the, the interpreter. And it wasn't until six months later that we, we, having had that meeting with him, he was obviously plotting the killing of Vit- Vitlienko. Yeah. Um, who, again, that sort of um, terrible murder. It's an interesting way of looking at it because... How many times do you have the murder victim alive for five days? Oh, no. To debrief him as to how he thought we got killed, which is what it, happened. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And was that, that was your team would have picked, picked that up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the, again, the, the, the Cobra meetings there were really uh, feisty because um, everyone was trying to do their best in a vacuum of knowledge and understanding and our experience of dealing with something like this. I mean, they were, yeah, he, he got um, ingested uh, with the plutonium um, in a sushi restaurant. The whole of London was contaminated in where he where they had been. Yeah. Hotels, so tourists, et cetera. I mean, it was horrendous. So you got the health authorities trying to, um, you know, which is predecessor, trying to get, make sense of what's the medical advice. And we've got the investigators also trying to, to make sense of it. And those Cobras, are, I mean, I, um, I've got a mixed view about it. You know, you, the, when you've got ministers sitting around here, on that 7-7, I remember Alistair Darling was the Secretary of State for Transport, and his only agenda was, you've got to get the trains running. You know, we've got, we, we can't have no trains like we have. So you say well hang on you can do that if you want the trains running we'll certainly get them running but that will be at the cost of the forensic grab and the same was with Litvienko yeah you got John Reed who was the Home Secretary banging the table saying give me advice give me advice and the ministers are posturing and and can't do that and they're compromising what should be 
of the primary objective, which is saving life and investigating the crime. Yeah. And so Cobra, unless you've got a really strong chair, Charles Clark, Home Secretary, was good. Blair was good as Prime Minister. John Reid was exceptional. Um, if you get someone who's a bit wonky, like Gordon Brown, I mean, he, he I, used to, I sat next to him uh, every three months. We'd get invited to a, a cabinet briefing of, uh, with Blair as the Prime Minister. And you'd get in, into the cabinet meeting and you'd have your nameplate at the seat. And it just so happened, whenever I went in there, I was the so Chancellor Exchequer sits right opposite the Prime Minister. We did in those days anyway. So I was to the right of Gordon Brown. And he'd sit there and he'd got terrible eyesight. And he'd be writing things in a felt pen with really big letters. And he had a pile of papers. I thought, impressed or what? He's come here well briefed. So when I was there the first time, I thought, I can't, I can't be caught looking over his shoulder, seeing what he's doing. So I got a bit braver on the second time. And then I looked over his shoulder. And he's doing his intro. It, it, and he then just does an, a notional question at the end, sort of show he's being played. Anyway, I, I thought that's shocking. Mm, yeah. That is shocking. But anyway, you know, it's none of my business. But he, he had his comeuppance because then he became Prime Minister. And on date, and he had Jackie Smith as the, as the Home Secretary. Yeah, he did. Um, but within three days, he'd had the Glasgow airport attack and the one in the... Um, Piccadilly, which was at Tiger Tiger, where they put yes, the car yeah, outside yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it didn't go off. And he was all over the place. He was all at sea, um, as was Jackie Smith. But Jackie Smith was really straight. She said, I remember saying to me, do you know what? I, I, I never signed up for, for this. A Home Secretary, she said, I, you know, I've, I came here to be an MP and I'm now being asked to run a multi-million pound business, which I, I'm not trained for. But then you got the other end of the scale. When Charles Clark was the was the Home Secretary, great guy, uh, Norfolk bound, yeah. you know. So I have roots from the Chief Constable there, so we had a bit of affinity going on there. He he was he was a nightmare to, to keep under control and manage. Like he he liked a little curry and a bit of bit of red wine, and um, it, so he he couldn't trust himself as to where his keys were. So we we were looking after him or his as a protection officer. And uh, we used to, he'd say, oh, yeah, I'm not worried about take me to the flat. Just drop me off at the flat in Pimlico. So the protection boys go, no, no, I've got to take you to the door. You know, get you in the door. And we had to have a word with him because he had his front door key on a bit of string through the letterbox. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got these people. They're great people. They're well-intended. and they, They're know, running our country. They're running our country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I saw... Um, Keir Starmer, he's a big Arsenal fan, and he was at London Stadium the other week, and I was talking to his pro officers. You know, they're, they're, they're human beings. They're, yeah, you know, yeah. And the, the great thing about Great Britain is that you're entitled to your opinion, and there's nobody going to stifle it. No. You know, you, no. you've just spoken about Putin. You can't possibly argue with him. No. Um, but, you know, we've all got different views. But there is politics. a – I do think – I mean, politicians. I'm not. I'm not going to use this as a as a sort of platform to to have a pop at because we all we know generally what they're what, what they're like and yeah. and what this how they're driven. But they are at some. You have got some that that I've seen firsthand who they really do work hard and they really do try their best. Yeah. And at times, even the politics gets them. I mean, Charles Clark. He had to, he had to stand down on the immigration stuff. 
he did nothing wrong. It was a political decision that had to be made. And, it, and yet when you look at what he did, he worked really, really hard and they were well intended. And so I, I would say overall, they, they're doing a, t- a tough job, but, the, but they're having to manoeuvre through all the politics. They are. And I mean, you're talking about an era when policing was just starting to become politicised. Yeah. Literally, you know, after she, he and all the other stuff, it started to become, and now it's so politicised. Everything has got an agenda to it and, and police yeah. has become very political. I mean, I've, I've, I've got no qualms whatsoever. I, I, I'll say to my mates, I, I couldn't survive now. I, I, no. I, I'd, I'd be out on my ear on because, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm being critical now because it's a different era and, I, and I'm sure everyone who's, leading it now in ACPO and are doing their best and they're working really hard and the, and the cops are doing what they can. But within the constraints of, of an agenda within, which I think is is stifling investigation and some of the pods I've listened to you doing in the past with other colleagues, they're, they're making the same comments. Yeah. yeah. And, and 10,000 flies cannot be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, can't, yeah. you know, if it doesn't smell right, it cannot be right. <laughs> and, and we, you know, but we, we, they try and sugarcoat it for what it is, but... So you're there, you've met, I mean, you've met some great people, haven't you? The great and yeah. the good of, of, of London aristocracy, the, the royal family. Yeah. What were the demands like by the royal family, though, on you as, a, as the boss? Yeah, they were, um, they, were, they were tough. You know, they were, there was no such thing as, you know, not taking a call. I mean, you. you <laughs> it's just. I'll tell, yeah. I'm ever so sorry, Mum. I'm having my ear cut. Yeah, you know, yeah. sorry, I can't make it today. So, and I, I mean, there was a couple of little anecdotes where um, Harry was out out on the lash with his mates, and they used to go to the same club in Piccadilly by the, by the Ritz, and uh, he's he's been caught in a yeah, compromising position in the laying in the curb. Rat faced, so they they papped, the papa got hold of it. So you know you got to tell as it was then Prince Charles, and this is what's happened. And you know, same with Tony Blair, his his boy, you and exactly the same. But these are youngsters going out on the town doing in what London, you, doing what youngsters well, do. Yeah, they they haven't done anything wrong. You know, it's not a good look, but you know, hey ho, that's that's the way it is. So those you had those kind of conversations, which weren't difficult. I mean, they were always. They're very grateful to be given the heads up, and they they would deal with it in the in the mm. way they deal with it. And, and then you'd have other other calls where, um, which were more difficult. Where certainly on the protection side, you'd have some members of the royal family who just liked the bells and whistles of the protection, but actually there was no security risk at all. But they just wanted all the bells and whistles of protection. Yeah, or they would abuse the protection. One particular individual, you know, the protection officer. They were just basically professional shoppers, and they were taken out the, the principal on a shopping trip. Or one one decided that they were a bit late to get to Heathrow, so they blue lighted it from Central London. And then we get half they get halfway there and realise they've left their passports at, at back at their residence. So they've had to then get the motorcyclist to blue light it back to the residence to get the passport to get. I mean, you know yeah. that those are unfortunate mishaps, mismanagement of their own affairs. But that's all part of the brief well, <laughs> inside yeah. the security. And it's just making sure it's all sweet. You know, there was, um, when Tony Blair stood down as MP, he bought a house in Connaught Square. It was a big old townhouse. And 
it was a, it was a building site, and he'd gone up to his constituency and and put his ticket in, and he was coming back, and I made a point of being outside his front door, thinking, oh, and I'm standing there in a hard hat, and I, was, I thought, how's he going to handle this? He's gone from a gated experience in Downing Street, mm. and living in you know a nice life and checkers, what have you, and rightly so, and he's now. Does he realise he's he's having all these renovations done, but it, it's not inhabitable? And I, they get out of the car, and he's just he just looks at it and goes, "Oh my god!" <laughs> so they they're human. Yeah, they are human. They're yeah, human. Absolutely. absolutely. When you were in the job, you got did you get the CBE? Yeah, I got. Um, I was after the um, chief of um, Norfolk got the QPM. And then after the bombings, um, they gave me the CBE. Lovely. Yeah, that was that was lovely. Um, so I had two uh, two visits to, to the uh, palace, both times um, the Queen did. How gave brilliant it. is that? Yeah, and then uh, it's f- funny how work at that like at those lunches, at that music in the church, just having a chat. All right, I try to speak a bit, a little bit more posh. If you can, um, mind your P's and Q's. I'll get in front of her on the CBE. I mean, you never, you literally, you've got um, 25 to 30 seconds, and she literally gets a whisper from the, the guy to the right. And normally that's to sort of, he will give her the heads up as to this is the professor of medicine is going to be knighted, and this is for his services to medicine, and she'll have a conversation. So I'm in front. And then you you stand there and you she leans forward, puts it around your neck. I'm completely tongue tied. I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm blubbering, not crying. They're like, well, yeah, yeah. But, but, oh, what is going on here? I felt so stupid. <laughs> and all I could do was say to her, "Oh, we're, we're uh, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> but you know when you've got to go because she puts her hand out. And as, as she's shaking your hand, she pushes you back. Really? As if to say, well, right, now, now, for now, now for you've had yeah. all the time. But yeah, that was um, good. And then it all went a little bit wonky after that. Because if you remember, we had 77217. Yeah. I then get a phone call, um, which has given me the heads up of phone hacking. So this is basically just, it's how it kicked off. And it's actually, as we speak today, I think Harry's giving evidence at the High Court on the Daily Mirror. I'm not sure he's turned up, actually. Is he not? Right. So anyway, um, the equerry from Prince William, he says to us, look, I, I listen to his phone. I listen to his voicemails. And the voicemail, once you open it, as you know, it's a bit like email. You can't you can't uh, hide your tracks. You've opened it, it's open. He said, and I'm, I'm hearing these voicemails. And they're, they've been opened. But he hasn't opened them. I haven't opened them. So they're on the phone open. So we do a little bit of jiggery-pokery around it. And then we un- we uncover that they they are being accessed remotely wow. on a regular basis. So that was that's how phone hacking kicked off. Now, I, I, I got a little bit waspy, a little bit angry about all that because we had 21777, we then had the airline plot, if you remember, trying to bring down seven yeah. airlines over traveling between the UK and London. And we had these smart asses after the fact saying, well, why is it you've not investigated phone hacking? 
with the same kind of energy and rigour as, as the Sarah stuff. Well, it's pretty, you know, you haven't got to be a Sherlock to work that out. Well, I've got to save life, investigate where people have tried to commit murder or have murdered. And we've got phone hacking over here. It's going to take a second priority. But none of them, in my view, got that or didn't want to get that. And if you remember, I, I had to give evidence to the Home Affairs Select Committee. I'd, I'd retired around that time. And they, they, were, they were being naughty because they were depriving me of the information that I needed. And they, they did not. I mean, as it turned out, Keith Fass was a slippery little operator anyway, as we all found out, when he had to resign over this, um, you know, the stuff he was getting up to in London. Yeah. And he was using that as his own political platform. And that's, I've sat there giving evidence um, at the Home Affairs Select Committee. And if, I don't know if you remember it, I kicked off on that. Yeah. As I'm sitting there behind me, um, I can remember it like yesterday. There's an MP called Chris Bryant, Labour guy. He's, he's behind me and he's abusing me under his breath as I'm sitting taking the, um, you know, taking the questions. And then I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting really cross. So yeah. I thought, right, you're going to have it because I'd spoken to Vaz on the phone before the the event and to say to him, look, I'm, I'm not being given the information to answer these questions. I, it's, it's in a big vault. I've got no access to it. I'm, I'm going to be winging it. You know, we, that's no good. We've got to do this properly. And he didn't want to know. And then if you remember, they were hunting like a pack of wolves. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm not having it. So I, helped, I tried to help my own and just was, I was probably rude and belligerent, but I'd had enough. I just sat there thinking, do you know what? If, if you don't want to do this fairly and you're going to take your gloves off, well, I'm a street fighter as much as what you are. Yeah. I probably, in hindsight, came out of that um, not so good. But then I could look at myself in the mirror and think, well, I've, I've said what I've got to say. I went to Leveson um, after that. Of course, I'm not going to do that in front of a judge. You know, much more respect mm. and will comply and answer things truthfully, which, which I did. And, uh, and I think the conclusion around that, I'm, I'm pleased they came to the conclusions they did because there was a recognition because they were QCs as it was then, and you know, high court judge, and they understood the pressures of investigation. And although they were critical on some aspects, because there were suggestions of collusion with with the um, the paper news of the world, um, they saw through that and saw things for what it was. So, you know, I, I took a few hits on. In hindsight, I could have done things differently. I'll take that on the chin, no problem. But they didn't get silly like the Home Affairs Select Committee, and I, and I think around. Around that time, that's probably for me, you know, all the um, pressures that come with that, with getting doorstep by journos, you're getting, you know, oh, family, you getting oh, yeah, getting, oh. getting pestered like hell. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't need this. No. So, you know, not so, not so good towards the end, but then that comes with the territory. You, you know, who would expect to be, you know, followed about all the time? You know, we would, I had a protection officers and drivers. We were doing ever so often all this sort of counter surveillance. Yeah, I mean, it's, you don't be doing that. So enough's enough. No, and and, and if, when it comes to your, your doorstep, that's just yeah, that's uh, too. Do far. you? I mean, your parents are still with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what do they think of this young lad that joined the that joined the cadets, who goes on to you know great things? I mean, what was your final title? What were you? Assistant um, Commissioner. Uh, specialist ops. So if you look around the country, you've got 
depending on what your command is. So the top commands for their for size and their pressure are going to be um, uh, West Midlands, Greater Manchester, Northern Ireland. Um, th- might be Merseyside, might be. And then the assistant commissioners in the Met. So they're, they're sort of deemed, as a chief constable, if you get one of those jobs, that's the, that's the top of the tree. So that to get that was... Yeah, I said it earlier. It's fantastic. Yeah, and um, so what do your parents? Yeah, do, I mean, do they realise what you? I, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, they're obviously proud. Um, we're we're a family which we don't sort of like, you know, revel in it all. We just yeah, yeah. You, you, that's, that's that's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I always ask people this because I think that we've all got you know proud folks. Oh, one one guy said, "Well, I think that oh, Scotty said, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think they'd be, I think they'd have been proud." Yeah, but you know, for what you've done and what you've, and I'm not blowing smoke up your backside. No, but, no, no. But you know, the fact is, Andy Hamer's an Essex boy. He's yeah. an Essex copper through and through, and he's gone on and he has led the top teams. Yeah, in the country. Well, I would, I, and I'm, you know, thank you for for saying like that. Um, I'm obviously, yeah, my little quiet time thing. I, you know, pulled that off. But it, I don't think you should, you should underestimate, especially towards the last two years, that it does come with a with a price tag on it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you, you 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 look at all the people that have gone through the through the old uh, spin dry. So Cressida was my deputy for eighteen months, and we had all the demented stuff. And then she leaves, retires, gets a cute job with the security services for four years gets persuaded to come back as commissioner and then she gets slaughtered, right? Now, all right, I, 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 we may or may not agree with everything she did or, or said, but I know her as a person and I know she doesn't get out of bed every day to screw things up no. and be nasty. She's actually a very caring, very thoughtful person. So she got her legs done. You know, and you can... You can the, the, the guy um, who was uh, a fantastic cop, uh, Chief um, Norman Bettison at, at yeah. the side. You know, forget what the rights and wrongs of, of the um, Hillsborough. Look, he's gripping the rail. John Stevens, Paul Condon, they gripped the rail over a health and safety um, cock-up. Um, you've got, there's a list, there's a whole list yeah, of senior people. Um, I'm not looking for sympathy here at all, mate, but what, what people don't then see is they don't see what impact that can have on you and... You know, the, f- the fact, what people think, you know, because people don't know the true story. And no. half the time you can't tell the true account. You know, I've tried to give it as much as I can today. Not for any kind of vote of sympathy, but to give people a bit of an insight as to exactly what goes on. But you're absolutely right, because you go to the Hillsborough stuff, those coppers on that day did not go there for those people to get killed. There is, you know, no. absolutely not. And Cressida, everybody I talk to about Cressida, she was probably the most caring of of, of commissioners, you know, and and yeah, she may have made some daft decisions around her staff and support yeah. of staff and all yeah. that. Okay, but that's a different story. But actually, she wasn't a bad person. Why on earth she came back? I mean, I, I, I do not know. I mean, I you know, and then I mean, I don't think I'm talking out of turn here. Is that she, the network that goes on. So she would have taken counsel, private counsel, yep. from previous commissioners. Yeah. 
you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We, we all do that, don't we? Speak, yeah, of course. Speak to mates and that. And um, I, I know that she asked, what, what should I do about an extension after the five years? Paul Condon said, never go beyond the five. If you survive five years as a commissioner, just, just walk away, you've had a result. Because something will hit you somewhere. And her, her counsel to her was, walk, because you'll be, you'll be the, you'll be the uh, scapegoat. And her best intention was that she felt that she owed it to, to the Met to stay a little bit longer. And she stayed only another three months, and look what happened. Mm. I mean, she gets treated like a doormat. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know how, how you could come to terms with that, having made a decision which was for the best interest of, of the Met as an organisation, because that's what she honestly thought. And then she just gets trashed, you know. And I, and I think, going back to where I'm saying, yeah, there'll, there'll be people that will go, Andy Holman, yeah, it's all about himself. He's a tosser. Um, yeah, okay, I'll take that. But hopefully, there are a bunch of people that think, actually, you know, he, he did all right. But don't ever underestimate, even whatever you think of some individual, as a, as a human being, no one deserves to be going through the crap that you end up getting. No, no exactly right. And the... the I think police officers are carved out of very strong material. Yeah. Uh, but you can only imagine what some celebrities are go- going through where it is constant barrage. Yeah, yeah. If you tell somebody that they're rubbish and that they've done this and done that, even when they haven't, they start to believe it themselves and then it all comes on top. Well, I, I was in a boozer, so oh, who was it? Right, it was um, in Piccadilly. So my normal um, routine would be picked up by the, the car driver, who was also a protection bloke, which was on a scale of one to 10. I was still reasonably low down on that pecking order. So he would normally come into the boozer with me. So I was meeting a mate. And it was about half past four in the afternoon. And I said, no, mate, just stay in the car. I said, I'll meet my mate. It's, it's fine. Just having a catch-up beer. He's going to the boozer. My mate is... Uh, no, I hadn't got there by that time. So I go up to the ramp. And I'm standing there and there's a guy sitting on the on a stool at the bar. So I know what my mate's going to have, so I'll order a couple of pints. And then, lo and behold, my mate comes in. I say, I'll sit over there, So we go and sit down there. After about five minutes, we're chatting. The geezer who was sitting at the bar, he comes back and stops at our table. And he goes, are you Andy Hayman? And I don't know this bloke from Adam. I go, who wants to know him? He goes, you are, aren't you? I goes, who wants to know And then with that, he just locked this pint of beer at me. And then done a runner. I mean, the protection officer was mortified. And I, I'm sitting there with <laughs> a pint of Peroni dripping off my nose. Um, <laughs> so I don't know who he is. I still don't know to this day. So the, it, it, is a, it is a weird world. I mean, I don't know how I've touched him in any way, shape or form. No. He's probably just a, I don't know, a screwball. I don't know. But funny old stories, really. How long have you been out of the job now? Well, I went in, uh, well, went in, uh, what was it, 08. Did you really? Yeah, and then I, I left and then set up my own little business of uh, consultancy. I don't know if you remember, I then started writing for The Times. Yes. So I did a commentary piece on The Times. Then I made a big, big sort of decision. I got approached to, to write a book, and I sort of vowed never to do that. I thought, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And then I was persuaded because someone, the person who was like lobbing me to do it, he said, 
Well, no one else is going to write one. So write it from not like a sort of having a pop at people. Write it as an account. So I've because this will be an account of the seven seven and all the yeah, stuff yeah. that went on and under your tenure. So I thought actually that's not a bad plan because really, I could write it as if you're on my shoulder going through it. So like a fly on the wall. Um, I buckled a little bit because I thought when I started thinking about things that had gone on about Cobra, uh, if you remember the 90 days trying to get terrorist detention for 90 yeah, yeah. days, I thought that that deserves more than just a fly on the wall. I need to give a bit more insight to that. So then I wrote the book. Um, and, you know, I, I, I quite enjoyed doing that. I mean, it wasn't – I had someone like a um, – I call it a ghostwriter, but I, I said, no, I don't, I don't want that. There'll be some chapters that I don't think I could write because I'm too close to it. So let's sit down and you can, and I'll tell you about it and you can write it and I'll edit it. Other chapters, no, I want to write that. So they needed to have a house style. So otherwise you could have be like a patchwork quilt. You have all different styles yeah. of writing. So there's someone doing that for you. So I reckon that of the 12 chapters or so, I reckon I probably wrote six or seven. And then the rest were written for me because it was easier for me to tell the story. It's quite a cathartic process yeah, as well, was. isn't it? Yeah, yeah it was. And we're, and we're good at keeping notes. I mean, we did pocket notebooks. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, I was rubbish at keeping pocket <laughs> notebooks. But, um, it's when you have to rewrite them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Many a true word. Yeah. 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 Can I, Maliri, come to my office? I want to see your pocket notebook. <laughs> yes, sir. I'll be down in three weeks' time. <laughs> three weeks time yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, Andy, I've really enjoyed today, and I hope you've enjoyed. Yeah, I have. This. Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, you've heard this a number of times. But is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in your account that you've given today? No, Your Honour, that's fine. Fantastic. No. Thank you. Thank very you very much. much. I enjoyed. I really it. enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you.